This is Inspired Wellness with Jessica, your new go-to podcast for mind, body, and emotional wellness. Tune in to hear real, raw conversations about stress, anxiety, and holistic self-care. I am your podcast host. My name is Jessica. I am from Inspired Life Collective. I'm an advanced EFT practitioner, meditation therapist, and holistic life coach, and I am on a mission to educate you on how to release stress from your body and dare I say, even prevent it and inspire you to live life with a calm body, a clear mind and thriving emotionally. If you are ready to support your long-term health and wellness, then let's jump straight into the episode. Ladies, I have a very special guest joining me on Inspired Wellness with Jessica today. If you are a mum, particularly with young children, and you are impacted by their sleep or lack thereof, and you are experiencing maybe anxiety, or you are wanting to know how to approach their sleep from a holistic perspective, then you are going to want to make yourself a cup of tea and pop your earbuds in as I am joined by this very special guest. Now, guys, I want to introduce you to Georgina Winderbank. Georgina is a holistic sleep consultant and a qualified naturopath. She's also a mother to a little four and a half year old boy, and she's the owner of the Holistic Sleep Project and online membership, The Sleep Collective. Georgina has helped countless families resolve their sleep issues, which affect not just babies, but the functioning of the family unit. Her approach is unique as it is completely holistic, just like the naturopathic philosophy. So this means that there are many elements that need to be aligned to create optimal sleep for your baby or your toddler. Naturopathy and holistic sleep together create a deeper understanding between the biology of optimal sleep and its relationship to other crucial parts of child development. Within Georgina's business, The Holistic Sleep Project, she helps families support their babies and toddlers as they get more age-appropriate sleep. Sounds really good. She transforms families from a sleep-deprived state. Hello. Hang on. Before I finish this, can I just do a little applaud? Did that work? Did you hear my applaud? <laughs> so Georgina transforms families from a sleep-deprived state uh, to a family unit which is energetic, more productive, happier and healthier. Her approach is completely individualized and customized according to the mother's birth experience, medical factors, possible postnatal anxiety, and the family's lifestyle and family setup, and any other individual factors that need to be considered. Georgina absolutely adores her work and gets so much joy from working with families and transforming their baby's sleep, which in turn transforms the whole family. Wow. Welcome. Thank you for having me. That sounds really good. <laughs> who, is, who does that great work? That sounds really fun. I have really been looking forward to chatting with you. As um, some of my listeners will know, I have a two-year-old who doesn't sleep very well and it greatly impacts my anxiety. So this has been a conversation that I know I have been really looking forward to having. 
And particularly because your expertise doesn't just talk about sleep and, you know, age milestone developments and things. You're actually looking at a holistic perspective. You have this amazing approach to helping families achieve that transformation. I want that transformation. <laughs> it's it's just such a phenomenal thing. And sleep is a really, really difficult thing that we are not taught about. We are not given this advice. We are given interesting bits and pieces of advice when we leave the hospital. And we all think that our children will just sleep. I remember my husband, we came home and he just went to sleep and he was sleeping really well. And we were sort of high-fiving each other thinking, what is everyone talking about? This is easy. And then the wheels fall off in some way usually. So, and we can talk about the ways that they do fall off as we go through, but it's, it's a really difficult thing. And I can totally relate to anxiety and how that's driven with poor sleep within, within me as an individual or also as a mother. And it's that case for a lot of, a lot of women and a lot of parents is that driver of anxiety. There's a lot of unknowns in that first fourth trimester I should say and there's a lot of things we're dealing with and our body changes and they might have health issues or health concerns as basic as reflux and colic and all those things so we have never had a baby before we don't know what we're doing and sleep is part of that it's really really confusing I find for parents absolutely how did you become a holistic sleep consultant well so I am a naturopath. That was my um, qualification. In fact, my undergrad, my earlier career was in uh, marketing and public relations. And then I, the second degree I did was a health science degree in naturopathy. And I was in clinical practice for a while and also in a really full-on sales role with an interstate company. So I went to see all the integrative GPs, the naturopaths, the osteos, the chiros. Absolutely loved what I did. I did that for six years and lots of travel and it was really exciting and fun met the best group of people that I'm still friends with but it was really really intense and through that period I had got married and we got pregnant and we lost our first baby in utero he was about 13 weeks old so that for me was a real sort of eye-opener and I thought this job is really stressful I don't think if I'm going to have another baby and have a really take that pregnancy the, the whole way that I should be in such a stressful environment. So it was a huge decision for me to leave because I just did adore it. But I did leave and I we had our, I got pregnant again and we had our little fella, Reggie, who's four and a half years old, as you mentioned. And I have always had real, well, I've always been a light sleeper, that's for sure. And until I met my husband, I might wake once a night for the toilet and that was, a, that was fairly good. But when I met him, he's also a snorer, a really bad snorer. So put those two things together of terrible snoring and light sleeping and you have a pretty difficult night ahead of you every night. So I know my Achilles heel. I know that it's sleep. I wake a lot. I sometimes take a long time to get to sleep, but I particularly wake a lot. So I go through a lot of my life in a sleep deprived state. And when I do have a good sleep, I'm a completely different person to this constant interruption that I have. And I also have this extra element of not having any family support. So I lost my mother when Reggie was, um, when I was pregnant with Reggie, I was 13 weeks pregnant with him. And my father had died a few years before. And my husband's father has died and his mother's in a home with Alzheimer's. So we don't have any day-to-day -day support or, you know, anything like that. So I was just really 
proactive and sort of factual about it. I thought, okay, I don't have any family support. I know that sleep is a major issue for me and it drives my anxiety. It would drive my anxiety when I was in that sales role and I was in a hotel room and I had been up waking hourly, couldn't get to sleep. And then I would have to perform and do 12, 14 hour days on my feet often at sales kind of conferences or in meetings and, and, and really perform, you know, and be in that kind of high level sales role. So I would be so anxious before those days and think, how am I going to perform? I have not slept. I have slept an hour. I've slept two total hours. How am I going to do it? So I would be really anxious on those kind of sales conferences and things like that. So knowing these things with Reggie, I thought, one, I don't want him to be like me. I want him to be a really sound, great sleeper like my husband. I want to be able to have control about when he sleeps, where he sleeps, because that will help my anxiety. And really it was about self-preservation. Mm-hmm. I very much had, I'm, a lot of parents do have a reactive um, take because they think, oh, it'll be fine. We'll just go with it. And I guess a lot more people are more relaxed than me. But I wanted to have a really proactive approach because I'm really well informed. I know my Achilles heel. I knew I had no family support. So I was always interested in it. I waited until he was on one nap. So it was about two hours. And I did a holistic sleep consulting course from the USA because that's the only one that I could find that had a holistic element to it. And he would go down and I would rush into the study and I studied for a year doing that. And then I launched the Holistic Sleep Project following that. So may I ask you, tell me what's the difference? So I I have an idea. I understand a holistic approach to health and well-being. But what is the core difference between you being a holistic sleep coach or sleep consultant and just a regular sleep consultant? Somebody who's not trained in holistic sleep well I guess they don't sometimes they don't look at all the elements and and some do a a normal sleep consultant may do but it's really this emphasis that I have on this naturopathing backing as well so another sleep consultant may not have a health science degree like I do so having a health science degree means I've done studied all the disease processes that exist and medications that they may be given that we can all be given and also herbs how herbs work herbal medicine and how nutritional medicine works so that was a six-year degree so I've got that in the back of my mind and I can ask mothers about their mental health conditions and their past history their um, disease you know their medical history in general as well as things that the baby may have had in birth um, and thereafter and I can understand all that and then make allowances for all of those things whereas I guess if you didn't have a medical background or a medical history like that you are coming from one place of of just sleep and I guess the other thing is so I'll I'll understand all of those things and I make concessions so if the mother does have a really strong history of mental health issues then I will change my tact according to that my approach and I look at so many elements. So the way that I work is I make sure all the foundations for sleep are in alignment first. And then if that's all in alignment and we need to do a technique, which there are many um, in room and out of room and really, really supportive techniques that I do, then we do that. Whereas I think a lot of um, sleep consultants might go in with a technique almost immediately. Mm-hmm. So they might set up some things in the beginning, but then they might go in quickly. Whereas mine is a really staged process. 
I don't move towards the technique of getting the child to have independent sleep until I've got some really big categories ticked off because what I want to do is have minimal tears. It doesn't mean there'll be no tears. There will always be crying when you're changing things and when the baby's getting used to things being done differently. And I minimal tears from mum or baby. (laughs) (laughs) Well, exactly both, right? I want to have a minimal distressing approach because it does get a bad rap sometimes sleep consulting and it doesn't have to so really making sure that there's minimal distress for parents and little one based on a really slow progressive thing and most of my packages we'll talk about that later but one of my biggest packages is a two-week package so I really get to gradually 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 change things the environment and feeding and routines and emotional connection That's a really thing that I focus on, which I don't think is perhaps something that everybody does, um, particularly the way that I do it. And then we might go in with a technique if required. Okay, that's amazing. I know that fourth trimester, as you said, it's not something that we're told much about. It's it's people people prepare you in the way they say, well, sleep now because you're not going to sleep later. (laughs) And and that doesn't really resonate with anybody until they're in that, you know, the trenches of two o'clock in the morning and feeling like they're completely alone and having their body on edge because one of all these things that they're dealing with and all the new stresses that they're dealing with, but also experiencing that impact of not having sleep on the nervous system and on their anxiety levels and on the way their brain is functioning. It's just, there's not as much support out there. Um, And I know from my personal experience with my first child in particular, I was referred to a, a government program and the information you sort of you weren't allowed to bring your baby which made it really hard yeah it was a two-hour thing and and I wasn't allowed to bring my baby I had to wait eight weeks before there was a spot available for me to go to it and in this time I was just desperate so this is six six years ago um but yeah the, the amount of support I guess there is available as much as they can offer from a government perspective but what we're told as new mothers and even when your second child comes along for me I didn't feel much more confident with sleeping well that's interesting because that makes me think about sleep schools and that's an interesting model which seems to be from what I can gather from because a lot of my clients will go to those facilities mm-hmm. and and not have success or have success for a while and then end up reaching out to me from what I can gather, it's obviously a one-size-fits-all model. So, And there's, there's some real categories that are missing. So emotional connection or specific tactics around that, um, the environment is really, really lacking in that. And they might do, they do, I think they do, some of them do really great settling techniques. Um, obviously, it gives the mama a bit of a break. But what I like to do is empower women. And this is where, and families, this is where the naturopathy thing comes in as well, the same philosophy. So when you go to a GP and you've got, I don't know, and I don't know, depression, let's say, they might give you an antidepressant and, and that's what they do. When you go to a naturopath and you've got depression, they will explain to you what is going on and why this has happened to you, give you some lifestyle things, give you some anxiety techniques. Um, techniques I imagine some herbal medicine some nutritional medicine and yes you may have to be on medication as well but we look at the whole thing and we want to empower you to get better whereas and that's sort of the way that I see 
um, something like that, whereas they're there to fix you or to settle your baby that night. But what happens when you get home? What happens then? And that is often what they say is things were going well when we got home or things were going well at the hospital. But when, uh, within a few weeks or a few months, we're back to square one and we haven't. And what I see is a real lack of education. Mm. So all the way through something like a two-week package, I'm teaching them about tired signs or awake times or this is when you know to move to the next routine and settling yes we work out how best to settle their baby so I want to teach them so that they come out of that two-week period yes with a baby that independently sleeps but also with some knowledge about where to go from there some I call them sleep principles so and I teach those in my membership as well because I just think that's the whole thing is we feel very disempowered. We're exhausted. Mm. We feel disempowered. We've had this baby. They tell us it's our baby. We know that we birthed the baby, but we don't understand the baby and we don't understand the baby's sleep. And it's really disempowering. And a lot of probably 100% of the mamas I speak to, they no longer trust their intuition. So they no longer, they say, I don't know if he's overtired or undertired. I, I don't know. I just don't know. I don't know if I should be doing the rocker or they feel confused they feel like they've lost their intuition and there's a lot of a huge amount of information out there about sleep now not not as much when I had my little one but it's saturated out there with information and overwhelming yeah and that's what made me reach out to a sleep consultant last year it's overwhelming and you can google for hours and then you can read something and go oh no I've been doing it completely wrong and then you can read something else. Then you go, well, maybe not so and much. That's the social media and aspect. And then there's also, I obviously don't have, a, you know, the mother-in-law that's active, but a mother-in-law or then the friend at mother's group yeah. that, you know, has a sleeping baby. You've got the personal level as well as the social media level. Mm-hmm. And, oh, my goodness, it is so confusing. So to give people a real simplicity with it and to work through in a staged process and, as I say, come out with an independent sleeper, but also with knowledge is, mm. I think, really powerful. Knowledge is absolutely powerful. I think when you can understand not only why what you're doing is going to help, but also why it's happening. So like with your example, you know, if you're experiencing depression and you go and see a naturopath and they actually explain to you why, what elements of your life or what elements of your lifestyle, what elements yeah. of what's going on in your body, could be contributing to that depression when you can understand why you're able to make more informed choices not only in the now but in the long term too and it absolutely empowers you absolutely mm-hmm. and having things in in your toolkit to then conquer the next time it might happen or, or the next sign that you see and that's the same for anxiety so when I see a sign of anxiety within myself I have tools over all these years of having that of what I need to do so that it doesn't get to a panic attack, let's say, or it doesn't get to the places that it's been before. So that empowering is what we want. We don't want people, I mean, obviously, as I say, I always say there's a time and a place for a GP and it's sometimes really good to get that opinion, but then it might be also great to go to another opinion. And naturopathy is not the model for everybody either. It might be osteopathy or kinesiology or you know EFT like there's so many modalities and you might need multiple um, or you might try a few before it actually really resonates with you and is effective yeah yeah there might be multiple that really complement each other people find as well yeah you know one of the things that made me feel like such a failure as a new mum 
with a baby who didn't sleep, not just for those first few months, but for a really long time, especially when I thought, particularly with my second one, I thought I'm going to make a bigger effort to, to do what I thought was the right thing at first. Um, one of the biggest things that made me feel like such a failure was when someone, and there's always those people, they would say, oh, my baby just slept through the night from the beginning. And I don't know if they just don't remember how bad it was or if I've actually met about 10 people who have had a baby and just had this amazing experience where their child never woke up for a feed during the night, but made me feel like a failure because at that point in time, my logical brain now says, yeah, newborns do need to be fed every few hours. You know, they're not actually supposed to sleep all night, but yeah, being told that, I, and I'm sure other people have been in that same situation where and, you've met those people and you're like, why? What have I, what I, I done that, wrong? I mean, I, I guess, am one of those people. However, I, and I get, I get, oh, you're so lucky. But there was nothing lucky. Well, there might have been, but I worked on that. Like mm. I was obsessed. I was obsessed with, and this is where really hypervigilant sort of anxiety through all my you know, losses and and for the people listening, I've since lost two more babies. So I've had three pregnancy losses and lost both my parents. And I think I do really, really well. And I'm a really um, well-adjusted human. But from that, the main thing that comes from that is hypervigilance and hypervigilance with his care, like when he goes to places and starts kindergarten and all sorts of things like that. Um, but I know about it. So I very much keep it on the down low and, and inside or when I get home, I'm like, oh, and I'm really anxious, but I try and um, not be outwardly anxious. Uh, but knowing how I was going to be and knowing how I am as a person, I was, and I guess I had the understand, like I'd had nearly, well, maybe 15 years of anxiety before I had him. Whereas a lot of mothers I speak to have never had any sign of anxiety until they have their babies. So I was able to have a proactive approach. Whereas a lot of people like postnatal depression and anxiety that hits mothers and they've never had anything like that before. Um, but in my case I had, so I had all these tools and I made this plan and I worked really hard. You know, I was, he was a June baby and I was walking him in the pram, in my Ugg boots, around my um, suburb because I was so sleep deprived, I didn't care, I was in Ugg boots. So I was walking to get him into an, or to extend a nap. And, and I would drive an extra two hours. So I might go to the osteopath, let's say, and he might've woke, which is an hour away, by the way, but he might've woken up on the way back. So I would drive another two hours to extend that nap. Like I was, I was doing really, really, um, going to all lengths to make sure that his sleep was settling in. And so he, I started that about five weeks. By nine weeks, he slipped through on his own organically. But you are right. Babies of that age can definitely, and they and they can wake up for feeds. He he just didn't. You know, he or he was sleeping really well. He obviously didn't need that. But but you worked really hard I worked hard at really, it. really hard. It wasn't a magical thing that just happened. No. <laughs> and look, and some babies we can set up the foundation. Some people set them up from hospital. And if they're warm enough and the room's dark enough and they're well fed, that that can happen. But usually, I don't know. I do think that there's times that even those really great sleepers that might have happened, you know, from the beginning, there's often things that derail them. And we did speak about this before we started recording, mm. that there will be a holiday. So they might, particularly around the four-month mark, so maybe they're really blissful, they're really dozy, they're sleeping really well, and then the family goes on a holiday 
or it's the four-month regression is a really key one as well. Or illness or hospital mm. stays, that's a really, and then sometimes it might be over and over and over and over again. So I had a client in the UK that I spoke to last week and that little bubba has just been hit with immune condition after immune after immune after immune, like so many immune things that he's coughing a lot during the night. His little system hasn't been able to recover. And we spoke because she was wanting to um, obviously hire me as a sleep consultant. But this is what I mean about the difference in my naturopathy history. I could tell having that mini consultation with her that it was actually a health issue. And some sleep consultants may have taken that on and gone, yeah, yeah, I can fix you, no problem. But I'm asking all my, the consultation questions that I would have asked when I did a naturopathy consult back in the day and I'm asking how long they had this what colors this not you know um what medication have they put you on just so many questions and then I derive from that no you need to go to I think she needs to go to a naturopath and maybe even a homeopath as well mm -hmm. because she's been to maybe GP she's been to the hospital and they just say oh this is viral this is viral this is viral well you can't do that much for that in the medical system for a virus so I was able to derive that she actually needs to go and sort his health out first. Mm. And then if the sleep problem still remains, we'll work together. But I actually don't think it will. I think it will resolve because he'll be well and he'll be able to sleep through because he actually can get himself to sleep and resettle before he was unwell. I love, absolutely love that approach. Just looking at everything from not just, okay, well, this baby's not sleeping. So here, let's get into what his room looks like and what time you're putting him down and what time yeah. he's feeding. But you're actually able to determine that, no, there's a medical reason for that. Well, he and I am not the right person to help you right now. So that woman is actually getting the right support for her baby to be able to begin to sleep and support himself. And that's when, when you might be a, a practitioner of one modality. Um, and sometimes I think GPs are a little bit like this. They think they can fix everything, but it might be better. Although they do send on to specialists, I guess, don't they? They do send on to specialists, but they would never recommend seeing a naturopath. Um, I think it's really important that, I forgot what I was going to say. Uh, one modality. Yeah, having having recognising, yeah, that's having these couple of uh, modalities under my belt that I can decipher what is best. And it would be really, really stressful for that baby and really stressful for the mother. If you went into sleep work, which sometimes involves standing back a little bit, or particularly at his age, he's 18 months, particularly standing back a bit, because um, the babies at that age might get a bit more, a bit overstimulated by our presence and they try and interact more. And I mean, there's many, many elements. We actually need to stand back a bit, but at this time when he's unwell, he needs his mama more than ever. Mm. So to start sleep work now would actually be quite distressing for everybody. Mm. Um, yes, I've had something else to say about that, but it's gone out of my brain. No, that's okay. Do you know, it's actually really fantastic too that you bring up that aspect of the fact that he does need his mother right now if he is unwell because when we're in that age from you know zero to five where it is our subconscious brain that is primarily you know in the driver's seat so your theta brain is primarily taken over and that is where a lot of um, I guess perceived traumatic events can be stored and stored in our subconscious and stay with us right through our adulthood. And we have no idea why. And so something as simple as, from our perspective, as simple as 
that mother, you know, mistaking the sleep being the issue and walking away so he's not overstimulated rather than actually really giving him the nurturing and attention that he needs because he's unwell, that actually has the potential to check the, the child subconsciously long-term. Mm. And I think we also need to recognise that, I guess in a different way of thinking about that, is that children need their parents, but it might be a different time. So maybe is it, it is at night, but maybe it needs to be ramped up during the day. So they don't need them as much as not at night. And this is where things like this emotional connection type of techniques that I do um, to sometimes say, let's say, let's say a child's going to childcare for the first time. And that's a huge block of time away from their parents. So that's like an eight hour day or whatever it may be. Then they come home and they have a small bit of time of dinner and bath and whatever. And then it's another huge block of time that we expect them to go to sleep on their own and be away from us. So during those times in particular, or if the child has sleep challenges, it's important that we ramp up the one-on-one -on -one time, I say in the daylight hours, mm -hmm. and then they may not need us as much overnight. That's obviously for a child who isn't sick or a child who doesn't have particular sleep challenges. So mm -hmm. I would do that with Reggie. Um, if he's, so he started kinder, well, he's in four-year-old kinder, but last year he started with the three days. But even at the beginning of the school year, I will make sure that we have a huge amount of connection at the end of the day. We have about a 20-minute drive, so that's actually really beneficial for that. And then we will obviously have dinner, but we might do an activity or a puzzle or something together or go out in the backyard together. Even when he was little, I think he was about uh, 14, 15 months old, he used to go to kind of like a family daycare, but it was called Nanny Share. So a nanny who was a qualified nanny or an ex-kindergarten teacher with three to four kids in a different house. And the house would change every day. So he did two days a week. So I think that's why he's such a resilient, adaptable boy because he was always at different houses. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, I'd worked on all the sleep things. So that was a no-brainer for the nanny, which is another reason why I did it, by the way, because not having family, I didn't want some random nanny to have to try and get my child mm. to sleep and spend hours I want it to be really easy for people that did look after him because I suspect if it's your family member or your mother they're willing to do that but if it's a random person I'm thinking that they're not we're so experiencing I would have... that with daycare right now yeah. so Amelia only started daycare in November last year and so she's two in one month and yeah the time that they put her to sleep was not the time that I had been putting her to sleep at home and is actually significantly earlier. But she won't do that for me at home. So it's also, <laughs> yeah. It's but all even over the place. The time like at childcare, from all accounts, it's it's they don't have the time to rock mm -hmm. a baby, to resettle. It's like, okay, well I did a 45 minute nap, they did a 45 minute nap. They've got other children to care for. So that was that that idea that I had, okay, I want it to be easy for people so that they're willing to obviously mind him, but he's happy and well-rested and all of those things. So just to finish that tale, I used to, it was like an hour's drive back from whichever house it was at. And that was my time to really connect with him. So we would, you know, he was, I don't know, 14, 15 months old, but we would talk and um, chat and you know all those kind of things and then by the time we got home and I also used to make it and I know that not all parents can and I totally appreciate that but I never picked him up any later than 4 30 at that time and he was going to bed at seven mm -hmm. and even now he's four and a half and he goes so one day last year he would go to after school care which was 4 30 this year I've done it two days but 
that's enough. 4.30 is enough. I find he's really, really exhausted on those days. Mm -hmm. And that's not much time to then reconnect before bed. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm just saying that absolutely we want to be there for our children overnight when required. But we can also ramp it up during the day. And particularly if, let's say, a, a parent all of a sudden as a mother starts working more and they're in care more or they go into a uh, transition childcare transition or if there's any sort of change or a new sibling comes along then we really want to ramp up that emotional connection and in you know really um intentional is the word I'm looking for really intentional not being in the same room but you're cooking and the child's doing something really intentional play together reading um going for a walk together asking them about their day really really intentional time no I'm just just everything you are saying is just <laughs> resonating with me so much. And I'm sitting here just nodding, nodding, nodding. Because I know when we started daycare, Amelia's gone from spending five, five, well, seven days a week, yeah. 24 hours a day with me. And, you know, I was working in her nap times and trying to do all the things we mums in business do. Yeah. But then I've had to up her daycare and it's only two days and the occasional three casual days, but they are long days for her. And that time when she comes home, you know, I've got a six-year-old as well. And literally we get home and it's dinner and it's bath and it's get ready for bed. And I'm just sitting here saying, yeah, we don't have that intentional connection time that you are, that you're talking about. And I just, I want, I want to just go give her a hug. <laughs> I want to pull her out of daycare and go give her a hug right The now. other thing that you might find, I don't know if you found this, but I have definitely found this, is that when they're away from us for periods like that, then we deal with the emotion mm. of their day yes. when they get home. So when he would start, particularly that after school hour, it was never on a normal day, which they finish at 3.15, but it was that extra hour last year, almost 90% of the time I would have emotion and he's not, I don't, I don't believe he's an emotional child. He can get frustrated now that he's a bit older, but he's a really calm, like my husband, calm, um, relaxed chilled cat right nothing bothers Reggie however when I would pick him up he would there would always be some sort of outburst whether in the car or when we got into the house and one I think he's tired that's for sure and two it's he's in a safe place now and he can unload those emotions so sometimes it's hard for parents because you've only got a small period and you might be dealing with those overtired, particularly if they're not sleeping well mm -hmm. and haven't had the proper nap that they need at childcare. Mm -hmm. So you're dealing with a lot of these things and sometimes parents will get frustrated and, and you know, depending on maybe they yell at them or, or get frustrated or whatever it is. And then they're the carrying the stress from their day too. That's right. So, you know, you, a lot of mums haven't actually stopped at the end of their work day and taken a moment to maybe do a quick breath or a quick meditation or a quick, if it's me, I'd tap. But just, you know, five minutes in the car before you step into the daycare centre to pick up your child or after school care, because my six-year-old does the same thing. She only has to go to afters on one day a week, but it's it's so emotional when she gets home. It's just that over overstimulated, overtired, yeah. and then here I'm home in my safe place, so I'm going to just let it all out. Yeah. <laughs> and, and if you haven't taken the time to actually intentionally stop as a mom and release what it is that you've been carrying all day, because you might be going, okay, well, do you know what? I'm, I'm late to pick up the kids and I've got to go and cook dinner now and I'm really tired and I didn't respond to those emails. So I'll do that when the kids go to bed. So let's hurry up and get them to sleep. And your mind is just 
going and going and going. So you're right. You can snap, you can, um, you know, interact in a way that's not, uh, you know, how you really want to be interacting, but it, it's just because you have so much going on. I know. And I, I can really identify with that because I work from home and mm. I drop him off and I basically come back and sit at my desk for the entire time. And I even have bad habit, but I have lunch at my desk because, you know, it's such a small period of time and, you know, whether it was two days and now it's three days, but that's only sort of five hours, maybe six, depending. And I just want to smash out as much work as I can. And then I, I do try and stop a little bit earlier. I try and sort of stop at quarter to three and I would try and make myself a coffee and then have that moment. Or if I get to the school earlier, I'll try and sit in the car and have that moment. But it definitely feels like there's no transition mm. between that and your brain, like you say, is still in work mode, but now you need to be there for somebody else. You need to be really intentional and focused on them. And there's also this rush sometimes to get through a bed and bath routine to get them to sleep at a certain time. Mm. Um, and I'm obviously really fixed on my client's bedtimes and also my own. His bedtime is seven. Mm. And on non-kinder days, he can handle a bit more than that, but only sort of recently. But I'm also doing that. So I want him to be good for kinder the next day. Mm. And I'm also doing that for myself because <laughs> yep. I've usually got a client. I've usually got another baby I need to get to sleep. That's why I could mm -hmm. never do this work if I didn't have a child that was in bed on time. And I do my membership calls at 7.30. So I have to have him. <laughs> <laughs> but, you sure. know, our bad sleep habits have come from me trying to preserve myself. It's, And I, I say this, I guess, um, knowing that this is a safe place to say yes, so yes. with absolutely no judgment That's the right. decisions that I have made um, with Amelia more recently have come from like you said at the very very beginning knowing that my Achilles heel is my anxiety when it comes to sleep is the biggest obstacle that I face with my anxiety I have done a lot of work on panic attacks and triggers and there is not much that triggers me now, but day to day, I am battling my exhausted nervous system. Mm. And if Amelia is not sleeping, which she was, we worked hard with a, with a lovely sleep consultant and she was doing pretty well um, until she got sick or like you said, something happened and then we'd have to start all over again. And then I'd spend my nights up, you know, trying to go through these resettling techniques and things that I'd taught. So she might've slept a bit, but I still certainly didn't. <laughs> but, but what I found is, yeah, particularly recently, particularly after our January holiday, actually, no, particularly after Amelia started climbing out of her cot <laughs> head first and giving me a heart attack. Yes. Um, I just, I just went back to that. I know that I'm not going to function and I, I don't want to function with panic attacks. So whatever gets her to sleep is what I will do. And that's and a safety issue lazy. too. Yeah. But, and that's a safety issue. And when it's a safety issue, um, and I don't want to get into co-sleeping because that's a whole thing, but that because some people do it and like to do it and that's mm -hmm. fine and some do not. And it's quite a, sometimes a really um, triggering emotional conversation, but mm -hmm. that has to be a safe, it's a safety thing. So if a child's crawling out of a cot, that becomes a safety thing. And so mm -hmm. many parents do what you have done and they are so tired that breastfeeding to sleep or formula feeding to sleep is a great example. So they 
were, you know, when they're newborns, you do feed, you feed to sleep and it's all great. But then there comes a time that it's the only way perhaps that they can get to sleep because nothing else is working. Perhaps they've gone through that four-month regression, which is really common. So the parents are having to work even harder and harder to get a child to sleep that actually could do quite well before that or before the trip or before the teething or whatever it was or before the illness. So then they do it more and more and more and then the child can't resettle on their own Mm -hmm. and they're looking for the breast or the formula bottle to get them to sleep again. So they end up waking. I mean, I have clients that waking eight, 10 times a night. So doing whatever you need to do, and that is absolutely true in the newborn phase. We do whatever we need to do. We have all hands on deck, rocking and movement and warmth and um, Mm -hmm. breastfeeding to sleep and dummies. And we do everything we can because, you know, it's really hard for bubbers in the fourth trimester. It's light, it's bright, it's overstimulating, it's loud. Um, we do everything we can, but there does come a time where if you want independent sleep, and that's what I say, if you don't want that for your child and you're happy to assist them, however you're doing, that's fine. But it sounds like, you know, like you and many of the mothers I work with, you're at a point where that's not working for you anymore Mm. and your family's tired and that's okay. That's okay to ask for help. It's okay to recognize that it doesn't mean when people do that they're bad mothers or bad parents. It means that you have to be a fully functioning, well-rested mama so that you can take care of your kids beautifully. And that's where there's a lot of, that's a whole other probably topic too, but there's a lot of guilt and there's a lot of um, dismissing mothers that when they ask for help. And that's, that's crazy. We all need to be loving parenthood as much as we can. And one of the, the elements to that is to be well-rested So we can enjoy those moments with them and we don't snap at them because we're so tired and they need to be well rested for not only the development, but their feeding. I find Mm. a real synergistic relationship between sleep and feeding. So when I start working with a baby, they might be like, yeah, they don't, they don't take a lot of milk. They don't feed a lot or solids. Mm -hmm. No, they're not, they're really fussy. It always comes down to, oh, they're fussy. They don't eat a lot of dinner. Mm -hmm. As soon as we fix up the sleep and we put a proper feeding and sleep routine together, then they, they eating so much more and they're feeding so much better and Mm. their moods are more regulated. And the parents are like, oh, I thought my child was fussy but they weren't fussy. They were just too tired to eat. I'm like, yes, that's exactly right. Wow. That's, that's really amazing to think about it like that. I just literally everything you're saying, (laughs) come and fix me. (laughs) Well, should we do, do you want to talk about Amelia a little bit and we can do a bit of a checklist and maybe give you an idea of where to go? I would, I would absolutely love that if you are happy to do that for me. Um, I will bear all to all of the bad <laughs> habits that I have adapted in the hope that maybe um, some mum who is listening can relate. For context as well, I have a six-year-old too who also still heavily relies on me to go to sleep. She doesn't need me to touch her. She doesn't need anything, but I have to be there. And she will fight it and fight it as well. So for me having a two-year-old who wants to go to sleep on me and won't and it takes a very long time to go to sleep and then my six-year-old who's literally sitting outside that bedroom door refusing to go to her bedroom and waiting for me to come and help her too 
uh, that's giving everybody a late night. <laughs> yes. I don't function and past 9 p.m. I genuinely oh, don't function. And they, and they start, we don't talk a lot about this, but I do want to mention this. There becomes a resentment and an anger, I find, and I have experienced myself when your child won't go to bed. Um, or for me, obviously, it was trying to settle him in the early days and I really struggled to be in the same room as him to do that because I would get really, like, angry and resentful. So I like I yeah. thank you for saying that. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people experience those emotions. And I think there's even a term mum rage. And the thing is, people experience those emotions. And I think a lot of people feel really, really guilty over that or feel like there's something wrong with them that they could experience such an anger or a frustration towards their child, particularly if they're not going to sleep. Um well, I think it seems to be anger seems to be a bit more acceptable for men than it is for women. And I've definitely learned that a little bit at those times, but more so even in the last year or so, we've been obviously in a really hard lockdown in Victoria for two years. Mm. So trying to parent with absolutely no support and no relief and in a lockdown and dealing with all the things that come with that, I really know really an anger that I just didn't know existed within me. So mm. And I also I lost my last baby in that time as well. So I think that was really hard because I had no I had no self-care. We had no, I couldn't go catch up with a friend. We couldn't go out to dinner. There was absolutely no self-care. So for Very me, isolating. yeah, that's when I saw, okay, <laughs> this anger thing. So if people are feeling like that around sleep, I really understand. And that's something I hear and see really commonly. So it's understandable by nine o'clock you're like I am over this I just want some rest and and really even the physicality of it like someone always being on you or and and, and oh, yes. that as well and not having your own space is a really that would be quite I would get resentful of that too if that's mm -hmm. how you're feeling yep yep I can relate to absolutely that and then there's that part of me that also grieves a little bit the fact that I don't have any time to myself so that, you know, just even if it was just to put something on the TV, I never turn the TV on and that's because I actually don't have the time to. But even if it was just to mindlessly watch something for a minute or read a book or just do something by myself, yes. um, there's a resentment that comes with that too. Because by nine o'clock when my six-year-old's still awake, I say, come on, we are going to bed. So we go to the bed together. Mm. Well, so when... So if I was had a client like you, I guess that there's some things that I would check off as to these foundations that I'm talking about. Okay. And some of the, the first thing I would be doing is the one of the foundations is knowing about nap time and all that sort of stuff. So what time does she wake up in the morning? So she's waking up between 6.30 and 7. Okay. And then what time is she doing and what, what time are you starting to try and give her a nap at home? So we're starting to find, sorry, trying to put her down from 12 30 with the aim that she's asleep by one now and I have to do school pickup I have to leave at 2 30 she will so if she's still if she's day. asleep by one you let her sleep till 2 30 yeah yeah and what about at childcare? does that differ there because it usually it does. does yeah <laughs> it does so at childcare, they give lunch at 11 30 and start the sleep process at 12 12 okay yeah. and then once does she go to sleep there some days I get a notification to say Amelia had an hour and five minutes sleep. And some days I get a notification to say Amelia had 15 minutes sleep. 
And okay, so it's never a big block. So it could be 15 minutes, could be an hour. Is mm, that that's right? If if and, if I don't wake her for school, if I didn't have to go and get her to school, because she's pushing that nap time during the day back further and further. So I'm finding now I'm getting very frustrated. It's 1:30 and she's just dozing off. And I'm looking at the time going, we actually have to leave in one hour. So this poor child is being woken up on a school day because of that. Um, But there's no one else you can pick up my daughter. Of course. course. And what time do you start the bedtime at night? So we start the bedtime. We do dinner very early. We do dinner around 5.30. My kids can't wait any longer than that for food or they're eating me out of house and home. Yeah. But bedtime has been pushed back to start the routine of getting into bed from 7.30. And that's because the premise I was working under was that she needed a longer wake time before she needed more sleep pressure to go to sleep. And if she was waking up from her nap at 2.30, then that's only five hours between... Now, one more question before I tell you about that. So when you're working with the other sleep, like when did she go from two naps to one nap? Oh, good question. How um, many months? I can't remember. Was it when you were working? Mm. With, so what? You did. I worked that through with the lady I was working with at that time. I can't um, remember how old she was though. All right. Well, let's, I'm just going to assume because I think this will be the case. So the first thing is for everyone listening is that Six, any wake between 6 to 7 a.m. for any child is, is really, really normal and really, really great. So sometimes mm-hmm. people say, well, I want my child to be waking at 7. I'm sorry, 6 a.m. is suitable. Every child is a little bit different, but anything from 6. And so 6.30 to 7 is a great wake. The, what I think about the nap is from, I think we had a little bit of an intro before we started recording, is that that nap has been at that time for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very common that parents do that and they keep that nap at, at that time. And when we start to go to one nap, it usually starts about 12 p.m. So she's probably been at 12, 12.30, I would assume, because the average time that a child goes from two to one naps is between 14 to 18 months. Mm. That's around the time. So that's a fair while ago, really, yeah. in the scheme of things. So that time needs to keep pushing forward. And when there's resistance, so when they start to resist 12.30 for, if there was no other sleep issues happening, they were resisting 12.30 for, I don't know, let's say a week, five days, then I would move it to quarter to one. And when they start resisting that for a while, then we move it to one o'clock. So I would think for her age, at least one o'clock. Yep. We've got a little um, our dog and she's just been put outside. So I would think that one o'clock would be, and I also think that a one hour nap is really suffice for mm-hmm. her age. So if she's getting more than that, then that could be affecting her ability to get to sleep. So one to two um, would be the first place that I would start. So and what really- time would I start trying to get her down for a one o'clock? Well, you don't start before. So because because that's all, they're just not tired enough. So it depends on what that looks like for you, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there there something that you do, like some people even read a nap, uh, sorry, read a book before that? You don't, when you say starting, do you mean you're taking it to the bed? Mm, Yeah. 
yeah. we're getting in because she is taking that amount of time. She just wants to play with me. Yeah. She just does. She's just not interested in going to sleep and, with and me. But if that. dad does it, he's mm. obviously working during the day. But if for some reason he is home and he does the nap, gone. Straight yeah. And no I think there's two elements around. to it, but one of them would definitely be the sleep pressure. So although you're right about sleep pressure at the end of the day, the nap for everyone listening moves forward mm-hmm. and, it, and it can also get shorter at the same time. So the first thing is she needs, she's going to bed. And although you're trying to get her like ready for bed and bed's at one o'clock, she's just not tired. It's mm-hmm. too early. So you start at one o'clock and goes down at one o'clock and then she should be asleep sooner mm-hmm. and then just cap it at the one hour. Then I think you're... Um, when you say cap it, you mean wake her up? Yes, yes. That's one of my sleep principles, capping the nap. So once she's asleep, let's say you start at one o'clock and she's asleep by 1.15, then you let her sleep till 2.15. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, I actually love dinner early. I think it's really, really important because what I find is that children are too tired to eat any later than that. They're mm-hmm. too tired. So if people go, oh, we do dinner at six o'clock or 6.30, it's too late. And then that's when we get things like the child is fussy. They're actually not fussy. They're just too tired to eat. Mm. So I, I sort of recommend dinner around 5, 5.30. So that's excellent. I'm very lucky. with So with my first child, I finished work at 10 to 5 on the clock. Normally wouldn't leave till around 5.30. And then I was picking her up from daycare after that. So I'm very lucky that now my circumstances allow me to be able to start dinner at five o'clock so that we are eating at 5.30. And if people are not in that situation, then they just have to have things ready. So I did a big batch of bolognese, you know, a week ago, I have them all frozen and I've taken it out this morning. So making sure that you just prepare for that. If you can't cook at the time, then you've got big batches of stuff ready to go. Yeah, do you know, I actually enjoy myself now eating at that time too, because I'm finding First of all, if I don't eat with the kids, the routine of the rest of the night and the fact that no one's getting to sleep till nine (laughs) o'clock means I would never get dinner. But secondly, I feel like I have been able to digest a fair bit of food before I go and lie down for bed and I haven't had as much reflux and I don't feel as heavy and, you know, I can actually get my body can do what it needs to do while I'm sleeping when I get to sleep um, because I'm eating that bit earlier. That's good. So another foundation that I'd really look at is what she's wearing. So what is she wearing for sleep at night? Oh, this confuses me. <laughs> so we have an array of sleeping bags, different togs. And what I do is I will go by the weather. So we do keep her room to a certain temperature, but in summer when that means having the air conditioner on a lot, I don't like it because I find it gets way too cold too quickly. Um, this, the, the cold air of the air conditioner makes the room cold, in my opinion, the mm. way that the way that our house works. So what I'll do is I'll look at what the temperature is going to be down to overnight, or I'll get a bit of a feel now as well. And then depending on what room temperature the sleeping bag is rated for, I will go by. So we use the love to dream ones and they come with a chart. And it yep. says if the baby is sleeping in a room temperature of this we recommend that you wear you know a short sleeve underneath the half a tog sleeping bag yeah so it does vary some nights she will just have shorts and a t-shirt and her half a tog sleeping bag when it's warmer um some nights we'll put her sleeping bag on and she'll have like a bonds um one of the breathable onesies underneath 
and then winter's a whole nother thing. But that's something that I actually obsessed over for a while. Well, and I and me doing the both. right thing. Me and you both. And that was probably a reason I was up a lot checking on Reggie for mm. particularly the first two years was I was so obsessed with him being warm enough that he didn't wake because <laughs> mm. I didn't want any sort of 5 a.m. wakes. I'm not into that. <laughs> and what I find as a general, this is speaking generally because I think it's important to address is we are told to not overheat our babies, which is really valid. But oftentimes I find poor 100% of the time actually that I work with clients is they're not the babies are not dressed warmly enough so they're waking because they're cold and sometimes parents will bring the baby into the bed which is what we call reactive co-sleeping where they didn't mean to co-sleep but now they are so yep (laughs) so a lot so one of the reasons children are wanting to come in is because they're not warm enough so just for, I guess, everybody listening, it's important to make sure that they are, depending on where you live in Australia or even overseas, that you, you do need to have a heater. And I actually believe that you do need to have air con as well because I'm just not comfortable with babies sleeping in really hot temperatures because they can't regulate their body heat until about 15 months old, which is another reason why they need to be dressed warmly because you and I on a cold night, Melbourne, Canberra, wherever we are, we will be under dunas and have our heavy pyjamas on. Once they start to roll, they can't be under blankets. So therefore we have to compensate with tog bags as well as room heat. So that's just something to think about and consider. What is an ideal temperature? So um, I know we try and keep our house overnight time around that 22 degrees. Um, But what is, so what is, so let's just say it's around 22, but what is an ideal temperature? sleeping environment to keep them warm enough if it was 22 degrees how warm should she be are we wearing a long sleeve you know what are we doing uh I'm not going to give you the full answer on the podcast no no, that's fair enough I'll give you the general the general answer is 19 to 21 degrees that's what I have to say is the general answer but I actually and the and the reason is people might take this out of context and then I I can't be in trouble with that but Individually, I'm very happy to give my recommendations. That's no problems. Um, but but the the theory the the general consensus is the 19 to 21 degrees and yep. not letting it drop below that. Because if you go into a room that's like 18, it's really cold. It is cold. It's really yeah. cold. So I'll tell you off off <laughs> the recording for that. So that's a consideration. So that's one thing. So um, what they're wearing. The, the day nap needs to be pushed later and shorter. Mm-hmm. Now, the one-on-one time is a really big component, obviously, and this is just for everybody, is if children are seeking you out overnight, particularly children that can get out of their beds and things like that, it's because maybe you need to ramp up that time. And it doesn't mean that parent, people aren't doing it. It doesn't mean that they're bad parents. They don't have connection. Maybe it just means we need to do more or more for a period until the sleep gets better and then you can maybe back it off a bit. So really having, and particularly because you've got two children that are needing you for for sleep, they're making sure that you're getting, and your six-year-old's at school five days a week. So making sure there's some really nice intentional time with her Mm -hmm. and then with Amelia as well. Um, Weekends as well, connection time with both of them Mm one-on-one. There's a technique that I really like. that I've learned through it's an American organization hand-in-hand parenting and they call it special time 
and they designate, I can't remember how much they do, but I do it more age appropriately. So it might be 15 minutes with each child. You set the timer and they, according to them, you get them to choose the activity. Done this so, with Kalia. After Amelia was born, we had to implement this for a few months. Yeah. So you might, your six-year-old might be into... I don't know what she's into, but she chooses whatever it is that you two do together. And then she needs to do it with her dad as well. Mm -hmm. And then you do something with Amelia that she's, and even with babies, you can still do it. You still get an indicator of what they're into, even though they can't tell you, you still get an indicator of what they might like to do. So that special time I really like as a concept to ramp up that one-on-one time with each child. And the other child has to be out of there and the other parent. Okay, that's really good. Thank you. Also, foods, think about foods. Um, We probably don't have too much time to go right into it, but making sure that all people that are listening, when they're well established on solids, that they're having protein in three meals a day Mm -hmm. because that will keep them fuller for longer and that we're not having foods which can disrupt sleep. That's a whole nother conversation as well. But obvious ones are things like sugar or packaged foods where there's lots of hidden sugars, even salt, because they might be waking to drink more if they've got packaged foods which have added salt. Obviously, sugar retreats and things before bed. Ice cream is a bit of a no-no because it's slower to break down and it's high in sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, but making sure they are really full. My son will have full-blown dinner and then he will every night he'll have a yogurt a banana and then five crackers. He's got this thing about five crackers. So and he's literally just had dinner like a half an hour ago. So I want to make sure he is fuller for longer because I want him to make sure he's sleeping through the night. Um, the other thing to think about with children of this age, but I would say in my work almost any age, is the TV. So a sure way to make a child overstimulated is to give them a device or television. So firstly, my personal belief is that young babies just don't even need TV. There is absolutely no reason they need it. Um, I didn't introduce, and I was quite firm on this because that's probably a value that I hold really strongly. I didn't hold give him TV until he was about three, and that's because we're in a lockdown and mm-hmm. I had to do some work at some, but I was really specific about what I gave him. So if you do decide to do TV, you might do play school or something more educational and you cap the time. It's not like three hours and sitting in front of them. So the thing around sleep, that's obviously my personal belief, but everyone will do whatever they want to do with their own children, of course. But two hours before bed, I do no TV and one hour before a nap, particularly if you've got a child who's overstimulated, like we chatted about, or come home from childcare and they're overstimulated, they probably don't need more stimulation or who has a sleep challenge. You know, for someone like Reggie, who's never been in that boat, maybe I could give him a bit more. But for a child who's struggling to wind down or uh, with sleep anyway, we don't want the TV and the devices near them. Mm, That makes sense. Amazing. Well, these are all fantastic things to consider. I'm going to go try absolutely all of it. (laughs) And the last thing I wanted to say to you is once you've got all those foundations in place, you would be a candidate for... So, so because what you could do is obviously she's not safe to be in the cot. So I always recommend staying in the cot until three, providing it's safe and then not crawling out because they don't have the maturity to stay there, which is probably part of your issue is she just doesn't have the impulse control to stay where she is. So things like floor beds are really great if a child is climbing out of a cot, but they're not old enough to be in a big bed. Mm. But then you need to make the room the bed. So you might put a baby gate on. 
we do have a gate on her bedroom door. Yeah. She's got, so um, her cot just dropped down to a toddler bed. So she's yeah. in a, so she's in a toddler bed and she does have a baby gate. We also have stairs. So I thought that was the main reason for the baby gate was for the safety um, of, of not accidentally falling down the stairs at night. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Safety um, first. And she just stands at the be... gate and screams. And she yeah. Just, and that's where the technique. So once you had all that stuff aligned, then if I was working with you one-on-one, we would go in with a technique. And someone who's had quite a lot of support, would she, like she's a child who has a lot of support, to sleep to get to sleep mm. you might do you do a very gradual thing where you might lie on the mattress next to her or our mattress next to her and you gradually move out of the room when I work with older children it's who who have come into their parents a lot that's obviously that's a really good thing so moving out real like slowly but not too slowly and she will check that you're there and she'll want to know that you're there and the biggest thing I haven't mentioned <coughs> excuse me is consistency. Mm-hmm. So whatever you decide, if that's what you're going to do and gradually move out of the room, you stick with that and you make it. You don't do it one night and then you get a lot of resistance so it's really hard. So you go back to what you were doing. You really have to come up with a plan. And this is where it's so hard because you're so tired and parents are so tired. And I fully appreciate that. Um, but maybe... Yeah, that's that's the big thing is consistency. So once all those things are in place, you decide how you're going to do it and you stick with it because that is what we have to be more consistent and more, we have to give them boundaries at this age. They really mm-hmm. do push boundaries. So boundaries and consistency are one of the main sort of things that will get you there. Wow. I have taken away so <laughs> much from this conversation. Thank you. I've You know, sometimes... Um, and I'll talk to you privately later, but sometimes, you know, getting that guidance, sometimes even just having a conversation is enough for you to not feel like you are completely on your own and that this nightmare is never going to end. It's so true. Once I speak to families and we have even the appointment booked or they've we've had that first initial consultation and I leave and I say this is what you need to do they feel like they've got something to walk away with Mm -hmm. and they know that they're on their way to better sleep absolutely do you know I always say to clients hope is not a strategy it's it's absolutely not a strategy but boy does it help when you're in that beginning trenches that you're trying to climb out of yeah yeah tell me where can we find you and how can people work with you Yes. So you can head to my website, theholisticsleepproject.com. I'll link it in the show notes. Great. So I have all sorts of resources for different price points. So, you know, free download, low cost download. The way that they can work with me is either in a mini consult. If you feel like it's just one thing, like maybe you need to go from a two to one nap transition or a childcare transition, that would be a 30 minute chat. If it's a one hour of power, it means that you're not quite sure what's going on and you want to have a bit of an assessment and I'll give you on-the-spot advice. But if it's a much bigger challenge, and this is a two-week package, which is probably my most popular, is that the child doesn't know how to get themselves to sleep or resettle. They've got a sleep crutch, whether it's a dummy that's a problem or only can breastfeed to sleep or it's something much, much bigger then we go through the whole process that I spoke about earlier. So there, everything you need to know is on the website. Head to Instagram. I'm there at theholisticsleepproject.com. Very active there. Lots of highlights on things and IGTVs and 
some really weird. I follow, <laughs> really I follow you. It is so informative. <laughs> good, good. And also the other thing is I have the membership, the Sleep Collective. That's opening in April and you can jump on the wait list now. And that is everything in the one place. So we were talking before about confusion and being confused. There is no confusion. It is short snippets of videos and written content because I know how busy mamas are. And we do a live in a Facebook group, a private Facebook group every week where we deep dive into a particular topic, as well as me always being there to support the mamas and what they're going through, troubleshooting everything they need. And it's five stages to independent sleep and everything that you need regarding routines and the environment and emotional connection and breaking those sleep crutches. It's all there. So you can jump on the wait list for that on the website as well. Amazing. You know, I highly recommend to anybody who is, uh, I guess, in this space where they really do need help with getting bub to sleep, go and consider the membership because jump on the wait list and just be there so you know when it's going to open because well I can speak from my personal experience not being in the membership but being stuck in that rabbit hole of Google and that overwhelm and then all of the unsolicited advice that comes from everybody around you who doesn't know you who doesn't know your baby who doesn't know your circumstances or who might be judging you or whatever whatever comes with that um don't google <laughs> don't google don't read the book that your best friend said worked for them because yeah. someone else tells you something else and you get too confused and what ends up happening is those bad habits continue for longer and it is a much longer process before you actually get some help so being in a membership space like that is yeah something because you are getting the answers from one amazing person you're getting that support. You're in a community environment as well with people who are going through the same thing as you. It's so true, Jess. They, some of the mamas report back that they actually like to hear what everyone else is going through and they learn from that. So even though they may not be at that stage yet, they learn and they kind of log that knowledge in their mind so that then when they do get to that, they are feeling more confident. And I actually know all my members and their babies by names. We're a really uh, personalized group. We celebrate each other's weddings. We've had weddings. We've had new babies be born in there. It's a really beautiful community. And I agree with you, rather than having a reactive approach and like searching randomly for someone to help when this comes up and then the eight-month regression comes up and then you go, why not have it all in the one place? It is all there for the families that I work with and want to be part of it. Well, if Amelia's not sleeping in two months, then I'll see you in the membership. <laughs> Love to have you. Oh, thank you so much for joining us today. I would love to hear in the comments, you know, what you got out of today and definitely go and follow Georgina on Instagram. I will link everything in the show notes so you can just click and head straight over there. Thank you for thank everything you, for you shared. Me. We could have spoken for two hours. Thank you so much. We probably have. You've been listening to Inspired Wellness with Jessica. If you loved what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. If you know someone who would love to hear all about this topic, make sure you share this episode on your socials and tag me at inspiredlife.byjessicaann. You can get in touch with me through my website, www.inspiredlifecollective.com.au. 
Thank you for tuning in and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.